This is a Rabble Podcast Network show. New voices in your head. It's Radio Free Radio. Welcome to Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Jeff Hughes. And I'm Chris Alvey. On the show today, I'll be discussing the Durban Review Conference Against Racism with Sid Schneid from Vancouver, who attended the conference. I'll be talking to Rob Albritton, who is a world-renowned author and political economist, with his latest book, Let Them Eat Junk, How Capitalism Creates Hunger and Obesity. And guest interviewer Noam Gonick will interview queer Aboriginal artists Kent Monkman and Adrian Stimson. And music is the weapon with Andre Clement, along with headlines and Around the Left in Seven Days. And now for the alert headlines for the week of April 30th, 2009. Chrysler and the Canadian Auto Workers Union have reached an agreement that will save the automaker $240 million a year. CAW President Ken Luenza called the deal a victory for workers, although one reached with a gun to their heads. This agreement meets the benchmark that was set by the federal government to guide our bargaining, Luenza said. He called the negotiations the most torturous and unfair process anyone can imagine. He added that the solidarity of CAW members allowed his team to bargain the very best agreement possible, which imposes the minimum possible sacrifice on CAW members and their families, despite the incredibly tough times. General Motors announced its restructuring plan, which includes massive layoffs. GM's hourly wage workforce in Canada is expected to decline from 10,300 in 2008 to 4,400 in 2014. In the U.S., GM will be closing about 13 plants. In Canada, the number of GM dealerships will drop from 705 dealers in 2009 to between 395 to 425 dealers at the end of 2010, a reduction of 42%. On the financial side, the U.S. government and the United Auto Workers Healthcare Trust could hold up to 89% of the common shares of the restructured GM. Current shareholders would see their holdings cut to 1%. A federal court judge has ordered Ottawa to pursue the repatriation of Omar Khadr as soon as practicable. Judge James W. O'Reilly wrote that the Conservative government's ongoing refusal to request Qatar's repatriation to Canada offends a principle of fundamental justice and violates Mr. Qatar's rights. Qatar has long remained the only Western national at the U.S. detention facility and has repeatedly claimed that he has been abused. Harper has long refused to ask the U.S. government for Qatar's return. The government is sending mixed signals on whether they will appeal the court's ruling within the permissible 30 days. The African National Congress took 65.9% of the votes cast last week in South Africa's general election. The victory puts Jacob Zuma in line for the presidency. The main opposition Democratic Alliance got just over 16%. A strong ethnic vote from Zulus helped boost the NAC, which sees the populist Zuma as the first leader who can energize voters since the legendary Nelson Mandela. The country's racial divide still runs deep. 
Whites turned out in large numbers for the largely white Democratic alliance, which has also courted mixed-race voters. The alliance was close to gaining an outright majority in the Western Cape Provincial Legislature, while the NAC trailed with less than one-third of the vote in that province. The UN's top human rights official hailed the global body's second conference on racism as a success, despite what she called a disinformation campaign that almost derailed the meeting. Navi Pele, who spoke as the five-day conference wound down, said countries managed to go beyond such issues as the Israel-Palestinian conflict to discuss broader problems of discrimination and intolerance in many parts of the world. She said there was a highly organized and widespread campaign of disinformation targeting the conference. Observers have noted that it is ironic that in a conference on racism, the boycott was exclusively by countries where whites are the dominant racial group. Senior officials in the Bush administration put heavy pressure on Pentagon interrogators to get certain detainees to reveal a link between Saddam Hussein and the 9-11 hijackers in order to justify Bush's illegal and unnecessary invasion of Iraq in 2003. That link was never established. That is the accusation made by Marjorie Cohen, president of the American National Lawyers Guild. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was waterboarded 183 times and Abu Zabayada was waterboarded 83 times, which is extraordinarily harsh torture. But neither man said what the Pentagon wanted them to. Internationally famous activist and intellectual Noam Chomsky has added his voice to a campaign by dozens of scholars worldwide to demand that the University of California at Santa Barbara cease its investigation of anti-Semitism charges against sociology professor William I. Robinson. He introduced materials critical of Israeli state policies in a course on globalization. Subsequently, the Anti-Defamation League demanded that the university investigate Robinson for anti-Semitism. Chomsky said that the charges form part of an ongoing campaign of harassment and intimidation by the Anti-Defamation League against all scholarly criticism of the Israeli state. And those are the alert headlines. And now around the left in seven days for April 30th, 2009. For more information on any of the events listed in Around the Left in 7 Days, go to CanadianDimension.com and click on Around the Left in 7 Days. Socialist Action hosts Toronto's 23rd Annual Socialist May Day Celebration on Friday, May the 1st, May Day. This year's event has the theme Solidarity Against the Crisis and features speakers Jorge Soberon, John Clark and Ali Mala. The celebration also includes musical entertainment, a literature display, a raffle, and surprises. In early April, agents with Canada's Border Services Agency raided three Ontario food processing plants. Workers were held at gunpoint and more than 100 people were arrested. On Saturday, May 2nd, there is a rally and march in Toronto to support undocumented workers. The action is organized by No One Is Illegal Toronto to demand, to demand an end to detentions and deportations of foreign workers. Canadian Dimension Magazine and Mayworks Winnipeg present Capitalism Hits the Fan on Monday, May the 4th at the Millennium Library. The film features University of Massachusetts economist Richard Wolff on the root causes of the current economic crisis and the failures of American-style capitalism. The film will be followed by a brief panel discussion with Canadian Dimension Editorial Collective members Radhika Desai and Henry Heller and editor Cy Gonick. 
On Sunday, May 10th, Grassroots Women Vancouver celebrates Mother's Day with a march and rally calling for all working-class mothers to unite and resist imperialism. Everyone is welcome to the child-friendly event to show support for moms without status, moms facing deportation, Aboriginal moms, and other vulnerable women. Speakers begin at 12.30 at McSpadden Park on Victoria Drive. For more information on any of the events listed in Around the Left in 7 Days, go to CanadianDimension.com and click on Around the Left in 7 Days. Hello, I'm Cy Gonick, the executive producer of Alert and publisher of Canadian Dimension magazine. You know, this is our last show of the season, so... I want to say just a very few words about the new issue of Canadian Dimension magazine, which uh, will be on the newsstands um, this week. The issue is mainly devoted to Mayworks, which um, is a celebration of workers in Canada and around the world, and an analysis of their struggles. In this issue, uh, we feature a number of uh, fascinating articles including, among many others, uh, one by uh, Greg Elbow, a prominent political economist on the unions and the crisis. We have two radically different interpretations of what really went on at the York University strike. We have a wonderful article on the newly established Windsor Workers uh, um, Action Center. And... um, and our cover story is um, a um, on the Winnipeg General Strike. This is the 90th anniversary of the Winnipeg General Strike, and we have in this issue a radical new interpretation of what went on at that strike and what it means for us today. Um, and then uh, beyond this issue, we are now frantically working on our July-August issue, which we call the Canadian Dimension queer issue. It's very hot and a real departure for Canadian Dimension. Uh, and we want to give you um, a little taste of the issue. So here's an interview that will be featured um, in, the inter- in the issue. It's an interview um, conducted by uh, artist and filmmaker Noam Gonick and queer artist Kent Muckman and Adrian Stimson. Here's Noam. Well, I'd like to welcome everyone to Alert Radio for Canadian Dimension and uh, the special queer issue of Canadian Dimension that is hitting the stands this summer of 2009, edited by Shannon Bell. My name is Noam Gonick, and I'm talking with two very special fellows from um, Toronto. We have Kent Monkman and from Saskatoon, Adrian Stimson. Um, Just tell you a bit about these artists. Adrian is uh, sometimes known as Buffalo Boy. He's a Blackfoot performance artist, installation, photography. He has uh, done performances at Burning Man. And Kent Monkman in Toronto uh, is sometimes known as Miss Chief Eagle Testicle. Uh, He's from the Cree Nation and uh, works in all the mediums that Adrian does, as well as landscape painting, video installation, and film. And you may have seen his painting, The Triumph of Mischief, which is on the cover of Propagandi's latest CD. And welcome, you guys, both to Alert Radio. Hello. Thank you. Hello. Thank you. And um, 
I guess uh, we wanted to talk to you guys about this whole notion of two-spirited or sort of the native queer identity for this queer issue of Canadian dimension. And I guess a lot of people sort of look at the 20th century sensibility as maybe being something um, that was sort of gay or Jewish. And I would like to posit that the 21st century for Canada could be something that's native and two-spirited. And I wanted to throw that idea at you guys and see what you thought of it. So the 21st century uh, for Canada is native and two-spirited? Well, that's my proposal. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, that that sounds good to me. Recruit, recruit. (laughs) Exactly. We're going to get our toasters for sure. (laughs) Uh It's all about world domination. Yeah. (laughs) How would you define the sensibility of two-spirited for people who've never heard of the term before? Well, just to, Adrian speaking here, just uh, like in in some of the research that I've done, and actually um, the term itself was coined in Winnipeg and um, uh, by a group of two uh, gay, queer, lesbian people who got together um, a number of years ago. I think it was in the either late 80s, early 90s. And they were trying to come up with a better term than bear dash. <laughs> right. And, uh, and at that time, uh, sort of looked towards uh, First Nations sort of culture and different terms that were used. And, and most often, it was the idea of, uh, you know, two spirits within one 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 body, uh, so I think uh, after much deliberation, uh, they came up with that term. But always remembering that within First Nations languages, there are terms that uh, that, that could be used uh, uh, within uh, various groups. And Adrian or Kent, what, what was the reaction within the sort of the native circles when this term was reinvented or reintroduced into the language? I think it was readily accepted. I think just people um, wanted uh, a word that was, this is Kent, by the way, that um, uh, kind of spoke to uh, an Aboriginal uh, queer or lesbian or trans identity, um, because I think, like Adrian said, you know, there are words that exist in Aboriginal nations, but uh, even, even, you know, even the terms Aboriginal, Indian, Native, I mean, these are all in, in a European language, so often these things kind of fall short when we when we attempt to define them in european terms there certainly didn't exist anything of the third gender uh in european culture so there was definitely a, a kind of uh, a gap or a bridge in terms of being able to identify or uh help people um identify themselves as you know queer or aboriginal first nations people I see in both of your work sort of a heavy use of magic as regards to two-spirit and sort of um, showing audiences sort of an alternative way of being and and the potential for transformation. And, and I know that both of you do that in your own personae sort of at, when you perform as, as uh, the chief or as Buffalo Boy. Um, did you want to comment at all on that, Adrian? Uh, well, I think that... Um, uh, <laughs> I guess I, I would say that um, it, it sort of softens the blow, <laughs> in, in a way, uh, in a sense that uh, it really, you know, has existed, and but within with the Aboriginal communities, but of course with the colonial project uh, as such uh, and Christianity that, that influenced nations, it, it really sort of sort of pushed it underground, or it was sort of kind of underground in, in many ways. So I think that it, it really. Um, uh, allows for 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 communities, both Aboriginal and non, to sort of get a glimpse that you know there are other ways of being and uh, and uh, ways of identifying yourself. And and I think through the character of Buffalo Boy, 
uh, it sort of plays, goes back and forth between male and female, and sometimes you just don't really know. <laughs> right. And Kent, can you talk a little bit about your own sort of personal um, self-discovery through your character, through your art over the last few decades, and um, the way it's sort of... There, there seems to be real dialogue back and forth between you and your work and 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 the persona that you take within your work. Well, um, Mischief really, uh, this character originated first in my paintings. Um, I'm, I was really interested in the documentarians of the 19th century, the Europeans who were looking at Aboriginal cultures and... Um, I looked at a number of different artists and, of course, the larger body of, of art. Um, and uh, was really, I, I, I became kind of fascinated with, with George Catlin because he encountered two characters, the Berdash and, and the Dandy, and um, he wrote about both of them. And um, so I was really interested in the evidence, looking for evidence of, uh, you know, sexual variance, um, even if it was sort of filtered through a European uh, lens. And uh, looking for, uh, you know, uh, evidence that might have been in art history or in their own journals, and of course, it's it's always coded in their own, you know, through their own biases and so forth. But I did found uh, I did find actually uh, a fair bit, you know, through through George Catlin. So um, mischief was created as a way of identifying with that Verdash, as the French referred to the two-spirited person, and. Um, with that sense of uh, mischief that she is in, I, she's imbued with, it kind of really, uh, she plays a bit with the, sort of the spirit of, of the trickster, um, you know, in, in the films, in the artwork. And to me, that, that really underscores um, uh, um, a desire to, to look at our history as it was written by the Europeans, but look at it through an Aboriginal lens. Um, and that's, I think, where the, a lot of the magic comes from a lot of the play um i do see sort of a real reversal of fortune in the tricksterism that you employ where the oppressor you know um in the traditional role you know we we think of you know uh colonialism natives had their land taken away you know uh raped and pillaged etc and you've sort of reversed that you've kind of given it a flip-flop in a delightful enjoyable way your your work is imbued with a certain sexuality so we see imagery of sort of colonial characters figures like the rcmp for instance and they're sort of um involved in sexual dalliances with native warriors where they're getting their butts spanked or whatnot but it's it's delightful or charming in a way are you ever taken to task for eroticizing the genocide of aboriginal people one, I, I, I don't think I'm eroticizing a genocide uh, at all. Um, I think uh, what I'm presenting is, is an empowered uh, perspective, an empowered uh, way of looking at our own sexuality. Um, yes, I'm playing with you know, traditional power relationships and reversing them, but um, it's certainly not about um, you know, sexualizing or, or you know, making fun of, 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 a, of a genocide. Uh, I think uh, I've, I've, no one has ever, you know, raised that question or issue with me. Yeah, I, you know, I, I would agree, too. I think that, uh, that uh, if anything, it's this idea of using one's voice as a, as, a, as a tool for empowerment. 
and uh, w- within doing that, you expose, you know, or you, you bring forward the layers uh, that exist within, you know, our, our common histories, and especially as it relates to the genocide. And um, I think, if anything, it, it perhaps provokes people to actually uh, look further into it and, uh, and uh, find out for themselves uh, what that history I- is all about. And, you know, I think that, you know, definitely through humor, uh, it, there's a way, uh, and, you know, and even, even sexuality, there's a way that, you know, that, of course, it's all pretty common to us all. <laughs> and, uh, and, and through that, it, it perhaps uh, opens a door and uh, allows people access to, uh, to understand it uh, even further. Right. And there's, there's actually, I mean, if you, you look at traditional Aboriginal stories, I mean, there's a lot of body humor in these stories, a lot of sexual humor, um, it's there. It's, you know, part of our culture. Absolutely. Uh, just a, a little story. Uh, back home on the res- reserve, they were interviewing a bunch of the uh, elders, older ladies, and uh, and um, they were just sort of talking casually, and uh, the interviewer just couldn't believe that the amount of sexual innu- innuendo. She <laughs> felt like she was in a boy's locker room. <laughs> you brought up Louis Riel, which uh, always makes me remember his... His prophecy that in a hundred years' time his people would rise up and it would be the artists that lead the way. Um, do you either of you think about that in your work? I mean, both of you are from relatively this area of Winnipeg. I know Kent, you did some growing up in Winnipeg, and, and Adrian, you're just one province over. So does does Louis Riel speak to you in his prophecy of the artists in a hundred years hence leading his people? Adrian, is that? <laughs> um, yeah, oh, absolutely. I see. I see. It, it's. Uh, I first heard that quote a number of years ago when I was in politics, and uh, I, I wondered about it then. Uh, at that point, I really didn't identify myself as as an artist, but uh, definitely, it, and it, it's it's brought up quite often and uh, in, in in various circles. So definitely, it's it's something that uh, influences. But I sort of on a personal level, I don't think I have any grand illusions or delusions. <laughs> That uh, that that you know that 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 uh, that well, what's the word um, that I'm uh, somebody who sort of is leading that, but also I'm part of a collective and group of people uh, that that are are doing amazing things and uh, very uh, very progressive and uh, critical thinking and and all that stuff around uh, uh, around sort of shaping the road for the future. Right. Um- just a final question here. I noticed in uh, looking at both of your work that you've often talked about killing off these persona that you take on. I, um, I think was uh, Adrian. Did you have sort of like a series of the deaths of Buffalo Boy or? How? And I, <laughs> I know- did. Yeah, it was the Battle of Little Big Horny. <laughs> right. And Kent, I've also heard uh, f- f- from you that you know this is it for this is my last performance as uh, Miss Chief Testicle, and you know she's not coming out anymore. So. Does that reflect a certain, I don't know, what is it about, about these persona that you take on that, you know, you then sometimes, you know, you wish you could sort of just leave them and, and move on to a different, a different persona? And are there new personas coming on for either of you? Is there a different character sort of in the laboratory waiting to come out? Well, I should just qualify that. I always say that this is the last uh, performance of Miss Chief at that price range. <laughs> <laughs> she does get a little more expensive. <laughs> Right, you but, don't get uh, it for yeah, free I, anymore. I mean, I kind of you know fantasize about killing her off in, in some sort of glamorous and sort of outrageous way, and then bringing her back again. But um, uh, you know, she still has a certain place in, in my work, and uh, 
I, I don't think she's, I'm, I'm, I'm done with her yet, so we'll see. Yeah, same here, and I think the whole sort of, for, for me anyway, with the whole idea of killing off Buffalo Boy, that, you know, um, it's much more, life is much more interesting in death. <laughs> and, 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 and also, too, with death comes celebrity. <laughs> so right. it's also ideas and notions of time, too, I think, because I think it relates to uh, Aboriginal mythology and spirituality as well, is that, you know, uh, our physical being may be gone, but our influences, you know, carry on. And uh, it's sort of fun playing with that idea of time that, you know, even after death that, you know, things are occurring. So really, I think it's, it's, it's more than, it, it becomes more uh, than just uh, uh, the ideas of, of life and death. It's about being. Well, on that note, I think we should end this interview. But thank you very much, Adrian Simpson and Kent Monkman, for joining us. A pleasure. Thank and um, I look forward to your continuing astonishing bodies of work both of you <laughs> well, thank you thanks Tom. over the last season of alert we've featured a broad diversity of artists and musical styles hip-hop folk afrobeat and punk are just a few examples of the genres of dangerous, socially progressive music we listen to. And this week, we'll be taking a look at what is perhaps the original dangerous song. Any clue as to what song I'm talking about? Well, here are three hints. Number one, this song was originally written by Eugène Poitier in 1871 and scored by Pierre de Gaeter in 1888. That was in France. Number two, it has been popularized and modified over and over in the last hundred years. Notable versions were rendered by Pete Seeger, Billy Bragg, and the Communist Party of the Russian Federation, respectively. Number three. It is sung traditionally with the hand raised in a clenched fist salute. That's also likely why it's our executive producer Saigonic's favorite song. Well, if you haven't figured it out, we are talking about, of course, the Internationale. And today, we'll be featuring three remarkably different versions of it. First off, let's listen to a version in the French language. While the song was originally written in French, as you'll hear, this is far from the original version of the song. Actually, it's kind of a parody. Années de la terre, debout les forçats de la faim. La raison tend dans son cratère, c'est l'éruption de la faim et du passé. Faisons table rase pour l'esclave debout, debout. Le monde va changer de base Nous ne sommes rien Soyons tout bidou bidou tout oh, C'est la lutte finale Nous prenons et L'international Sera le genre humain Bidou bidou tout oh, C'est la lutte finale Nous prenons et demain L'international Nationale, Jura, 
You are listening to Music is the Weapon, and that was a parody of the Internationale, interpreted by French ensemble Chanson Plus Bifluoré. Now, you would be hard-pressed to find a song that has been translated in as many languages as the Internationale. Working people all over the world have made it their own. It was the de facto anthem of the Chinese Communist Party, and paradoxically, it was used as a rallying song by students and workers at the Tiananmen Square protests of 1989. The Internationale, sung in Mandarin. Interesting. This version of the song is sung by the Tang Dynasty Band, and it's got a rock and roll feel to it. Let's give it a listen. <laughs> listening to Music is the Weapon, in our season-ending feature on the Internationale, a song that will be heard, no doubt, on all continents of the planet tomorrow for the annual May Day parades, protests, and celebrations. And if you Google specifically the International Song, you'll find a webpage that has compiled most of the versions ever recorded of the song. Versions in French, English, Russian, Mandarin, There are even Arabic, Bengali, and Albanian interpretations of the song. Check it out. You won't regret it. Finally, let's listen to Billy Bragg's version of the Internationale in good old-fashioned English. Now, Billy Bragg's version is also a modification on the original lyrics, having deemed them archaic 
and unsingable. For Music is the Weapon, this is André Clément signing off. Hope to catch up with you next season.
This is Alert Radio. I'm Jeff Hughes, and I'm joined now by Sid Schneid. Sid Schneid is a research is the research director of the Telecommunication Workers Union and a member of the Canadian Dimension Editorial Collective. He has just returned from Geneva, Switzerland, where he participated in the World Conference Against Racism, also known as Durban Two. Welcome back to Alert Radio, Sid. Thanks very much. So tell us uh, first, Canada boycotted the conference. So what capacity did you attend Durban Two in? Well, uh, even if the Canadian government had participated, I wouldn't have been there uh, in any capacity related to uh, Ottawa. Uh, I was there as part of a three-person delegation from a national organization known as Independent Jewish Voices. We are an uh, organization that's oriented toward extending solidarity to the Palestinian people and trying to end the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza. So we were interested in the issues that had been uh, raised at Durban 1 in Durban, South Africa in 2001 and the follow-up work that was going to take place at Durban 2 uh, or the Durban Review in Geneva and uh, last week. Well, there was a lot of uh, headlines and controversy generated over the speech by Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad that uh, caused several European uh, representatives to walk out of the conference, uh, although I understand some of them returned in some capacity. But little else was reported about the conference. Now, since you were there, we've come to you. Was Durban 2 mainly a platform for anti-Zionism? It wasn't at all. I mean, you wouldn't know from reading, reading our free press much of what goes on anywhere in the world, let alone in forums like this. Uh, this has been characterized since 2001 as an anti-Semitic hate fest, and that is a grotesque uh, distortion of what happened in 2001. And then the spirit that motivated that kind of slander, uh, the Durban follow-up here was attacked by the, the Israel lobby and its allies around the world in an attempt to undermine the entire effort. The reason underlying that uh, slander was that Israel was uh, singled out for criticism in 2001 for its treatment of the Palestinians. But that was characterized as anti-Semitism by Israel and its allies, and they tried to prevent the whole issue from being raised again uh, this time in Geneva. Was the uh, pro-Israel lobby uh, in evidence at the conference in Geneva? It was actually something to behold. They had probably more than a thousand people there with military-like discipline, fantastically well-funded. They had rallies. They disrupted. They were in-your-face aggressive. And in addition to um, seeing to it that the issue of Israel couldn't be addressed, they made it difficult for a whole range of other highly important issues arising uh, first in 2001 and following here in uh, Geneva to be addressed. Among those uh, primarily was the issue of the transatlantic slave trade and reparations. There were people from all over Africa, North and South America and the Caribbean who went to Geneva uh, determined to have that issue addressed and to really make some progress on it. And the Israel lobby did everything possible to, to derail that. Uh, in addition to that, we tried to get the issue of Palestine raised again, and the pressure from the Israel lobby made it such that there were no inside workshops in this conference on Israel and Palestine. So we had to do whatever we were doing, sort of, in the interstices. 
Well, we understand that uh, Diana Ralph uh, made a representation on behalf of independent Jewish Canadian voices. Uh, so tell us very briefly, what did she say and, and how was it received in this atmosphere that you've just described for us? Well, first of all, she defended the entire Durban process and uh, criticized the Israel lobby for trying to undermine it by characterizing it as an anti-Semitic uh, situation or a, slant, or a slur on Israel or Jews. It was not that. There was a straightforward uh, attempt to address the plight of the Palestinians within and without Israel, and that was an, uh, derailed very strongly. So Diana... Uh, criticized that, and she extended solidarity from our organization to the people who wanted to deal with the issue of the transatlantic slave trade and reparations, as well as indigenous land claims around the world. And all of those positions were really uh, powerfully well-received by people. We were interrupted by uh, three times by applause. Uh, so it sounds like those were some of the accomplishments uh, about uh, this Durban review. Um, can you tell us uh, some of the other highlights or the, the good aspects of the conference? Well, I had the privilege to see two workshops. One was from uh, indigenous people from Bolivia who gave a really amazing workshop on the uh, pressure and violence that they're experiencing at the hands of the white minority that is determined in that country to hold on to all land and wealth in the face of the indigenous people's political movements for land reform and political reform there. And that was a very dramatic illustration of the whole framework of the issues that are uh, addressed in the World Conference Against Racism. And the second thing that I saw that was extremely valuable was Israeli uh, activist Michel Morshovsky, who uh, put the whole situation uh, from Durban 1 to Durban 2 in, in a really good framework that uh, enabled people to understand the importance of the whole thing. He described Durban one as an enormously successful battle against colonialism, and that success became a catalyst for elements determined to carry out a global counteroffensive organized by a relatively small group of neoconservatives who were determined to roll back the progress that had been made there. And this counteroffensive we're all very familiar with and initially focused on the issue of terrorism and later it shifted ground to calling it Islamic terrorism and then finally concentrated on Islam itself. And Warshawski explained that this was promoted under the rubric of a clash of civilizations with Judeo-Christianity engaged in a battle to the death with Islamic barbarism and this whole amazing propaganda effort that we've all been subject to. And Warshawski continued to explain that the terror framework, uh, if it was rejected by people, they were accused of being anti-Semitic, and that while uh, anti-Semitism does continue to exist, he pointed out that European anti-Semitism is coming from right-wing Christian sources rather than those rooted in Islam. So I thought that those were very powerful insights. And then uh, he concluded by saying that it's necessary for international popular movements to regain the momentum that uh, and the ground that had been achieved at Durban 1 by uh, reorganizing and coming together again in anticipation of the 10-year review of Durban, which uh, with uh, any luck will be happening in two years' time. So it was really an eye-opening experience to see the various forces arrayed there and what the underlying issues really are compared to the comic book version that we're presented with in our newspapers. 
what do you plan on doing next with independent Jewish voices? We're following up on some of the issues that came out of there. We're having uh, the executive director of the African Canadian Legal Clinic from Toronto coming to our annual general meeting that's taking place in Ottawa in June to explain the whole history of Durban and people's involvement to debunk some of the slanderous stuff that's been spread about Durban 1 and to build some bridges between the Jewish community and the African Canadian community. And we want to do other activities like that. One last question. The, the disinformation campaign, how can Canadian citizens seek to get the accurate story on Durban, the Durban conference? Says, Well, we're going to be having some reports up on our website that people might want to look uh, at independentjewishvoices.ca and we'll uh, have uh, uh, op-ed pieces and things like that and the ability to contact individuals who participated, including myself, for any particular information they want. Well then, Sid, thank you very much for reporting on your uh, attendance of the uh, World Conference Against Racism, which was held in Geneva, Switzerland, uh, Switzerland also known as Durban, the Durban Review. And uh, in two years' time, we shall see if uh, Durban 3 will occur. Thanks very much. Rob Albritton is a world-renowned author and political economist, recently retired from York University. His latest book, published by Arbiter Ring, was launched only last week. It is called Let Them Eat Junk, How Capitalism Creates Hunger and Obesity. We reached Rob in his home in Toronto. Welcome to Alert, Rob. How are you tonight? Just fine. Good. First off, why did you title the book Let Them Eat Junk? Well, <clears throat> it goes back to uh, the famous quotation of uh, Marie Antoinette, let them eat cake. Uh, this, of course, was uh, something that she said just prior to the French Revolution in 1989. And uh, not long after that revolution, she, she lost her head. Uh, <laughs> Funny <laughs> but, enough. <laughs> but uh, the reason that she responded that way, somebody apparently asked her the question, uh, People have no bread and are hungry. What should we do? And she, she answered by saying, let them eat cake. Hmm. So I thought that this uh, way of speaking indicates uh, a kind of classic statement of how often elites feel about the poor and the hungry. And uh, so I thought, well, uh, in today's world, probably no one would say let them eat cake, but mm -hmm. um, many of our dominant elites act as if they are saying let them eat junk. At least, at least their actions are speaking that way, even if they don't actually say it. Okay. And then your subtitle, How Capitalism Creates Hunger and Obesity. In a nutshell, how does capitalism create both hunger and obesity? Well, I think that left to its own devices, capitalism continually uh, creates inequality by rewarding some people uh, with an income of, say, $2 a day for cutting cane in the hot sun, while others sit in air-conditioned offices and pull in huge paychecks, maybe $10,000 a day. And capitalism leaves about a quarter of the world's population of 
6.5 billion people uh, continually on the edge of hunger and starvation. And obesity is not simply a problem for the rich. One of the cheapest food inputs is sugar, and sugar is quasi-addictive. Uh, some kinds of fat are also cheap inputs into food products, as are many salts, artificial flavors, and artificial coloring. Right. These are precisely the ingredients of junk food, which is all that many people can afford. They get lots of calories, but uh, very few nutrients. So they are essentially overfed and undernourished. And so, you know, this book is a really thorough exercise in the political economy. There's over a thousand footnotes, um, and yet it reads angry. And so you are angry about what you have found in your research from what we've just discussed here. And let's talk about why, Rob. Yeah, um, after 36 years of teaching political theory and political economy at York University, I got interested in this topic of, of food, and the more I read about it, the, the angrier I got. Um, as, a, as an academic, I'm sort of trained to uh, write in, in sort of neutral scientific language, but in writing this book, I, I couldn't do that um, because I saw so many injustices that made me angry that I had to be honest about how I felt. And uh, I think a good diet is really the basis of all human health. Of course. And also, really, for environmental health, uh, we need to find ways of producing <laughs> food that is environmentally sustainable. Of course. So what we see, actually, in the world are half the people either hungry or obese. And um, a system of food provisioning that is radically unsustainable because of its dependence on fossil fuels and its contribution to an estimated one-third of all greenhouse gas uh, emissions annually. Rob, you make some startling points in the book. I'm going to read a few out and ask you to very briefly comment on them. We'll get right into it. So the first one being, of the 10 leading causes of death in the U.S., only two are not related to food and drink. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that... Um, an example would be um, the number one killer disease, chronic illness, is heart disease. And a major risk factor for heart attacks is high blood pressure, which in turn is largely a product of diet. So something uh, like heart attack, which is a leading cause of death, <clears throat> is uh, pretty directly related to, to diet, of course, not in every single case, but in the vast majority. Right. And the same could be said for many other chronic diseases, such as uh, cancer or, or diabetes. They all have roots back into the food system, what we eat and what we drink. So it is true, you are what you eat. In many ways. I mean, of course, it can be, be you can be overstated, but mm -hmm. I think... Uh, there's, a, there's more than a grain of truth in that. Right. Let's go on to the next one, uh, Rob. One-third of the babies born in the U.S. are likely to be diabetic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this uh, was, an, was an American Medical Association report that was uh, published uh, a few years back, and 
what they said basically was that one-third of the babies born in the U.S. in the year 2000, and they just took that as a point of reference, uh, will become diabetic, assuming that the existing diet patterns continue. And I think that what they mainly had in mind was that uh, today the youth uh, of the U.S., and probably it's pretty close to the same in Canada, gets uh, about 50% of its calories from uh, sugars and fats added to the food they eat. And this uh, is one of the major causes of, of what's been referred to as a, an obesity epidemic. And so let's talk a little bit about, again, obesity-related diseases, pardon me. In the 21st century in the U.S., more people will die of obesity-related diseases than even of, to- of tobacco-related diseases. Yeah, this uh, report was done by the, uh, the Center for D- Disease Control in Atlanta, and um, they, of course, have been tracking all of the various diseases and, and the causes of death. Um, in the U.S. today, even with all the activism to, to cut back on smoking, there's still 400,000 deaths a year attributed primarily to to smoking. So to say that the obesity epidemic will claim more is to say a lot. Uh, it means over 400,000 people a year are likely to die from obesity-related um, illnesses. And the next one I'm going to give you is a very staggering statistic. There will soon be one billion people in the world with impaired mental development because of poor nutrition. Yeah, I mean, that is, that is shocking. <laughs> but, um, you know, in fact, there's over a billion people now who uh, suffer from, from hunger and malnourishment. And, of course, in, in a way, over time, that, that sort of, produces a a kind of starvation. Um, In fact, there are something like 350 um, children every half hour under the age of five who die of malnutrition-related illnesses. And those that survive, many of them get um, stunted either mentally or physically from uh, their lack of, of nutrients. Well, and that's uh, unbelievable, absurd. Um, yeah. We've got two more here. Supermarkets are purveyors of unsustainable petrofoods and unhealthy processed foods. Yeah, um, supermarkets are the main purveyors of, of food in our society, and uh, they are, most of our food can be called petrofoods, and, and the reason for that is that um, it's very dependent on uh, petrochemicals for fertilizers and for pesticides. And uh, I was surprised at the numbers here that in the U.S., and, and I think, again, the numbers would be similar in Canada, um, 15 million tons of petrochemical fertilizers are used every year. That's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And 100, well, no, 1.2 billion pounds of pesticide each year are also applied Part of the problem here is that, of course, the chemicals don't all stay in the in the fields. They get off into the environment and uh, cause uh, toxic problems there. I'm so, going to just um, 
a lot of our food then is is very dependent on on petroleum and and the chemicals derived from petroleum. Uh, and this is, of course, unfortunate at a time in history when the prices of uh, petroleum are going up as the supplies. Uh, go down. So in your last chapter, you talk about movements working to change the capitalist food system. You actually outline your own ideas about, uh, you know, how you see it changing. So give our listeners a very brief summary of what you're advocating. You got about a minute. Okay. Um, basically, I think that we need to put food provisioning at the very center of the global economy and find ways of providing uh, healthful a diet for everybody using uh, farming methods that are sustainable. And uh, secondly, I think we have to find ways to make corporations more democratically accountable uh, and so that they don't just um, push profits but also look at uh, human well-being in the long run. And uh, finally, I think we need to make markets more accountable and be willing to intervene to alter prices when that is necessary to promote human flourishing as well. Thank you so much, Rob Albritton. Again, the title of the book is Let Them Eat Junk, How Capitalism Creates Hunger and Obesity. And we strongly urge every listener of Alert to read this book. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that was our final show for the season. Chris, it has been wonderful having you with us this whole year. And the same for me, Jeff. Well, we look forward to bringing you the headlines from the back burner to the front again in September 2009. Have a great summer, everyone. Thanks, as usual, to all the people that helped make Alert happen. Nash Soon Walla for the headlines. Karen McIntosh for Around the Left in Seven Days. Andre Clement for Music is the Weapon. Technical producer, Tommy Allen. And our executive producer, Saigonic. Alert Radio is broadcast on the Canadian Dimension National Radio Network. For today's episode, you can click on www.rabble.ca or go to the Canadian Dimension website for past shows as well as today's show at www.canadiandimension.com.